totally not recording, so just sing whatever you want, and it'll be fine. Have you seen The Joker? No, I haven't. Was I right in interpreting that as the Frank Sinatra song? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's who does it. That's the... That's what yeah, people you know say. Yeah. Riding high in April, shot down in May. What are the chances Tom puts his own singing into the intro of the show? Hmm. I feel Zero, like he might be no safe. Recording I'm recording. I lied. Oh. When I said I wasn't recording, that was a lie. Oh, sounds like I'm going to be in it then. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. I'm Chris Toomey. And I'm Steph Vicari. And together we're here to share a bit of what we've learned along the way. So Steph, how's your week going? It's been a week. Uh, it's a day of mixed emotions. I'm personally having a lovely day. I'm very excited to chat with you today. I have a three-day weekend ahead of me as today is the Friday right before Memorial Day. The less lovely bit is that the number of people in my life that are impacted by layoffs continues to rise, and that's really hard to see. The people that I care about, they're going through a tough time, including those that are directly impacted by the layoffs and then those that are left behind to continue forward without their colleagues. So I've witnessed various numbers of layoffs, and even when they're done as thoughtfully as possible, and as you know, I've also seen some really badly executed layoffs. <laughs> uh, but in either case, even when they're done more thoughtfully, and then also when they're not done as well, it's just sort of like a it's a crappy experience for everyone. So it's a really good reminder that we all need to be extra kind and extra gracious to everyone around us. So that summarizes how I'm feeling. How are you doing today? Yeah, I definitely share the feelings just seeing the, you know, the, the scale of all of the layoffs, both in the tech community, and then also much more broadly. I've also been affected less directly. And so I definitely feel these things. But with regard to the layoffs and things, is that folks in your extended network? Is that anyone that you're working with directly or people at ThoughtBot or? Yeah, it's been a mix. It's been some of my friends. Uh, it's also been some of the people that I'm working with for like client teams. And then it's also been directly. So ThoughtBot, we have also gone through some uh, layoffs and that's been very hard and difficult to go through. It's really all across the board for everyone that I, I know and speak with. Everyone's pretty much been impacted. And I feel like the people that I do know that haven't been impacted also have this sense of like, well, when's it our turn? Because it just feels like one of those events that is hitting pretty much everyone. Uh, so then even if you haven't been impacted by it yet, then there's still some nervousness around like, is it going to happen to my company? Is it going to happen to my team? And I've really appreciated the companies and teams that are being so open and honest with the fact that they are going through this and how they're approaching it and sort of like leaning on the community to share their experience and be just very real. I, I really appreciate it when companies and leadership are, are very open and honest and sharing their processes and how they make these tough decisions with others. Yeah, it's all interesting. For me, it's been a little bit more removed, uh, partly because I'm sort of a team of one right now. But even the the clients that I'm working with, they've been somewhat insulated from the changes, I'd say, um, just due to the nature of the work that they're doing and things like that. But I've definitely have heard a good amount and seen on Twitter and things like that. So yeah, sorry that you're going through that and that folks, you know, extended out from you are going through probably the, the harder version of it. Thank you. On a slightly lighter note, I have a keyboard confession to share with you. 
Oh my, a, conf- a confession though, this sounds loaded, but yeah, all right, let's let's uh, let's go in that direction now, hard, hard pivot. <laughs> I have purchased a new keyboard. Uh, it was not planned, it was not intended, but I have purchased the ErgoDox Easy Keyboard. And the reason that came up is because Carl Reyes, another thought botter in the Boston office, decided to sell his second pair. And I just, I couldn't resist the offer since he already has it and it's easily available and he was being kind and offering at a great price as well. So soon I will be the owner of my third keyboard, the backlight or backlit ErgoDox keyboard in black with Cherry MX brown switches. Does it have printing on the keycaps or is this the like flat black, no letters on anything. Oh, I'm panicking. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, my understanding is with the ErgoDox, it's enough of a physical difference in the layout that you end up having to sort of relearn touch typing anyway. So it ends up being a really good time to do that. So if it were me, I would buy it without the printing on it, mostly to force myself to like real. I've never fully, ad- I think I touch type sort of, but like half. Like there are certain keys that I have to look at or certain keys that I have to like anchor and then find and like fully touch typing, especially on a much different layout like that. I don't know. You could, yeah, go big, put some tape over them if they actually do have the letters. I think you're a very bold soul. I don't know if I'm as bold, but I might be forcing myself into that world because I, I didn't think to ask Carl. I asked him a couple questions about the keyboard, but I forgot to ask that question because I forgot that's one of the options that you can choose. I wouldn't be surprised if he did choose the one where you don't have the, the letters on the keys. So I may be diving into this world with a hard crash course lesson. <laughs> and my understanding is that the first week is going to suck. So there's a couple people on ThoughtBot um, in the Boston office that have the ErgoDocs and they very much love it. They do admit that the first week is very hard to adjust and move over. But then once you get past that first week, then they wouldn't go back. They always want their ergo docs over any other keyboard. Yeah, it does seem like a great keyboard, although I've tried Matt Sumner in the Boston office had one and I tried that out at one point And yeah, I couldn't type anything. I just couldn't. It didn't work. And I think he had blank keycaps as well, which did not help in my random adventure on it. But uh, well, congratulations. What is what are your plans for you have two others now currently? Yeah, I'm gonna have three total. And I'm, I'm not sure. So I, I have the Leopold that has the Topper switches. And then I have the Keychron keyboard. And so then now I'll have the ErgoDox. So I think I'm gonna have to sell one of them Well, I'll have to but I will likely choose to sell one of them just because having three, I'm not going to give them any of the attention that they deserve. So I'll have to find a new home for one of them. But I'm not sure which one it's going to be if it's going to be the Leopold or Keychron. So uh, decisions, decisions, I'll cross that bridge when I get there. Indeed, I have two currently, which is not useful because I obviously never leave my home office. So I really only need the one. Uh, but I do I have two, I think identical ones, unfortunately. So I had like one at the ThoughtBot office and one at home. Now I just use the one at home and I have the other one just sitting off to the side. But I should probably sell that because I, I don't need that. But I am I'm looking and thus far successfully avoiding purchasing, but the Keyboardio Atreus, which is a little tiny compact but split and with a like a shifted row design or shifted column design for better ergonomics and things. I think it's it's like a tiny connected ergodox as far as I can tell. And it's in theory portable and you can have a little like holster for it. And it's the video for it is pretty great. It's like, oh, you're into keyboards, you're weird about this. Let's go for a ride, friend. So they they captured me. I think it like it was an Instagram ad maybe and I was like, really? There was an Instagram ad for a mechanical keyboard and I clicked through and I'm thinking about buying it. What have I become? Instagram really knows who you are now. 
<laughs> the keyboard holster cracked me up and then I loved how you responded and you're like, yeah, I'm here for it. <laughs> I'm into the keyboard holster. I don't know if you're going to do something, accept that it's who you are and then really run with it. Although I don't actually know that I would want the holster. I want the like little package and I can put it in my backpack, but no, I'm not probably not a, an actual keyboard holster user. But who knows? Who knows? In post-pandemic times, I could be anyone I want to be. So maybe I will be. The keyboard kid, you need the hat and then to be able to like saunter up to someone's desk to like pair with them and then be able to whip out the keyboard out of your holster. That would be a good Spring moment. loaded so that I just like open this, the little snap and it flies up and I catch it and then I'm ready to go. Automatically pairs with Bluetooth. Yeah, that's that's the me I want to be. <laughs> I love it. I will admit that when you showed that keyboard to me, I was hesitant to buy this keyboard, the Ergodox, because of that one. Because I really do like how compact it is because I am also that person that when I travel somewhere, I want to take my keyboard with me. And the Ergodox seem pretty big, so I'm not excited about the size of those. But I also hate to wait. And the keyboard that you showed me is still in Kickstarter mode. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be a while. And I just I'm too impatient of a person. Yeah, I can barely get by with your two other fancy mechanical keyboards. I say as I also have a preponderance of mechanical keyboards. So here we are. <laughs> Yep. Uh, So that's the new stuff in my life that I'm super excited about. So I'm sure I'll have updates on how adapting to that split column layout is going. Uh, What's going on in your world? Well, I have had a on again, off again battle this week with trying to set up custom branded error pages in a Rails app, which I thought was one of those solved problems. But I have come to the opinion at the end of this week that it is not a solved problem. So the, the various approaches that are out there The typical recommendation is to do a custom dynamic. Basically, you have a controller and you say in your config application RB, the exceptions app is self.routes. And then in the routes, you add some production-only routes for 404, 422, and 500, respectively. Then you have a controller that can and does dynamically render those pages. Then ideally, you do the hard work of making sure you're not using much of the dynamic behavior of Rails in those, because if your error pages error out, that's bad. You really don't want to do that. The default behavior is just Rails has the pages in public. So public slash 422.html, public slash 404.html. That's what gets served normally. But yeah, I, I struggled because I really wanted to have the custom branding. So we have, we're using Tailwind on this project for CSS. And in the Tailwind config, that's where the brand colors and some other things that are unique to how we're structuring the, the layout are. And so I wanted to have access to those. I also wanted to have this be something that I could maintain long term. So I didn't just want to generate new versions of those public files. So I tried the fancy thing and it did not work. Wait, what, what was the fancy thing that you tried? Uh, setting up the exceptions app and then providing the I, I was unhappy with it as well because I didn't want to have dynamic pages. I wanted to have static pages because that's, I think, the correct way to do error pages. If something's broken in my app. I don't want to have to run my app to generate the error page. That seems backwards. But I tried that and it worked for the 404 and the 500, but it didn't work for action param- or whatever it is, strong parameters, unpermitted param. I had an error like that and it was not showing my custom branded error page, nor was it showing Rails's. It was just like a blank 422 error message or error status code that the browser was then showing like a really unhappy page about or a deeply unbranded, like not even the the Rails normal thing, which is the worst case. So I was like, well, I have succeeded in a manner of speaking. So the 404 page looks nice, but the other ones were broken and there was still enough dynamic stuff there that I was I was unhappy with the approach overall. There are previous solutions that people had put out there in gems, but I think the other difficulty I ran into is 
A lot of them were using the asset pipeline to pre-compile the HTML files, but we don't really use the asset pipeline. And we have the asset pipeline, but we're mostly in a Webpacker world, and particularly our Tailwind config goes through Webpacker, I think. I'm pretty sure of this. I don't think I could get access to it on the Sprocket side, but I also didn't want to use an older and semi-deprecated. I don't actually know how deprecated Sprockets is, but it's not something that I want to rely on moving forward. So yeah, I went around and around, but eventually I just made a controller that generates these pages in development mode. I copied the HTML, I curled it, and then I inlined the CSS with a little Chrome extension that found the CS, the actual CSS that the page is using, and I inlined that into the head of the document. So it's a bunch of manual work. It will be hard to update in the future, but it works very well now, and they're very speedy pages. Interesting. Yeah, that is one of those, I like how you started this with like, that's one of those problems that we've solved. I'm trying to go back to a while back when I also had to do a similar thing for a project. And I remember it being a little more complicated than I thought it was going to be when I first started working on it and then ran into a similar issue where the service that we are using, I want to say it was the hosting service that I was communicating with and the way that they are serving up the error pages, like we wanted to give them that static file. So I did a similar approach as you where I inlined everything. I don't think I was as clever where you went through and like curled it and grabbed it from there and then stuck it in a file. Like I think I wrote the styles in the file itself. So then that way the file could be completely independent of the application and it would always render correctly. And I feel like that's where I landed, but I I'm recalling a similar journey as you where it was not as straightforward as I thought it was going to be when I picked up that ticket. I was definitely surprised by it because I think I've done this in the past and it's been more straightforward by virtue of relying on that assets precompile thing because you can just you can generate a static HTML file, I think, with everything in line, but I actually couldn't find any documentation around that. It was extra fun because Tailwind by default produces a very sizable CSS file for everything that's in there. And so additionally, the nature of Webpacker, the way we're using it now, is to render the CSS, you have to include the JavaScript. And so if you like curl the page, there's no reference, there's no like style sheet link tag for the application CSS. It's magically sideloaded via the JavaScript file, which I definitely didn't want. But I did the simplest thing of like, let the browser render it and then just copy the outer HTML of the browser at that point. And I put that in a file and I was like, how big are you, friend? And it was four megabytes. That was an unacceptable size for my error page, which that's the nature of Tailwind is it has all of the classes you might possibly want. And in reality, you use a tool like Purge CSS to simplify that down. But the thing that I went with was this Chrome extension. It's actually really cool. It dynamically looks at the page that you're looking at and calculates the active styles and then dumps out a, here's the style sheet with only the critical CSS of the page that you're looking at. So that was very nifty. Oh, what's the Chrome extension that you're using for that? CSS used is the name of it which is actually super cool little utility for this particular thing. I have other things that are in play for Tailwind within the site, but in this case, it worked perfectly for the very specific use case that I had here. So cool. Yeah, cool. I hadn't heard of that. Nifty. I also, as part of this, did something that I never do, which is I wrote a lengthy comment in a source file. (laughs) And it's definitely one of those like, here be dragons, warning future developer, just know that we tried the other stuff and it didn't work. So if you have to change this, I tried to capture some of the details of like, how did I make this work and how in the future could they update it when branding inevitably changes in colors and things. But uh, I I felt so weird writing that comment. I was like, this isn't who I am, but apparently this is the best answer I have right now. So all right, I'm going to write a big comment. Here we go. In addition to the keyboard kid, this is is who you've become. (laughs) 
to add comments. I am curious. So what is that flow? So let's say like, if I were coming after you, I'm the next developer, and I need to update that page, what would that flow look like? What's the the easiest path forward? Uh, I tried to make it as straightforward as possible. So there's in development mode slash error slash 404 will render that page 422 and 500 respectively each render their own. So they're nested under errors and they're only in development mode. But with that, you can go to them and they render like any other page. So they're pulling in the current style sheet and all those sort of things. But otherwise, I replaced all asset references. So there's two images that are on the page. And I copied those images from App Assets images into the public directory. And I have a regular non-digest link for those. So rather than using any of the asset pipeline functionality or digested asset URLs, which I know can expire on different deploys, I wanted to make sure it's like, there are two images. I can trust that they are there because I put them in the public directory. So the only thing that needs to then be updated is the, like you can go through and mess with that page as much as you want. And if you reload it in development, it will show you the current version. So then you can curl that file over the like public slash 404.html. So you replace that file with the contents of the curl and then go in there and edit the CSS references. So remove the JavaScript line, which is necessary to get the CSS because reasons. I think Webpacker's improved around that, but we haven't updated to the newer version, Uh, but then put in the CSS used critical CSS block. And then that's good to go. When you say remove like the or working with the CSS, does the CSS live in its own file? So when you're running this locally, you can make changes and then you can refresh and see the changes. But then when you like you're saying you want to make it static and that way it's independent of the application, that's when you would then curl it and grab all of the actually used like CSS that you need and stick that in a file. Yep. Okay. And I think part of this is we're starting to delve into Tailwind conversation here because the HTML is using all of these Tailwind utility classes. And then there's the full style sheet, which has all of the possible Tailwind classes that I could use, but I don't want that. All I want are like, I use MT4, which is margin top four, and I used font semi-bold, and that's it. So those are the only CSS class declarations that I need. And this CSS used extension is able to give me that subset. And then I just copy and paste that into the head of the 404.html file in the public directory. Okay, cool. Yeah, that doesn't sound so bad. I must admit, I'm becoming one of those individuals where I'm, I'm still not a fan of comments. I still feel very strongly about that. But I have seen like the occasion where I'm like, it's not quite the commit message that I want it to be like, that's something that could go in the commit message. And then someone could look back to when that file was introduced to see if there's some helpful tips. But for something in that case, like, I don't know, maybe like a, a comment like feels right in that case. So the next person knows how to update this or maybe that, uh, I'm about to say it, uh, that lives in like a readme or a wiki or something. I don't know. That is one of those intriguing, like, how do I help the next person? Where does this live? Yeah. Where the next person will likely be me, but six months from now, who's completely forgotten all this context. I did put it in the commit message as well, of course. Um, But it was a case where I'm like, if I need to do this again in the future, I'm not going to remember this. So I want to try and capture that where I can. And like any comment, it has the likely reality of going out of date very quickly. Like Webpacker may add a assets precompile sort of thing for HTML that will completely make this workflow unnecessary, in which case that comment would be a lie. But I'm willing to make that trade off here this one time, this one comment. In regards to the comment and talking about like where to put that information, uh, is there any way to automate this? Like there's, I'm imagining like where you can curl and then you can get the content that you need and then save that to the file and update the file. But I imagine there's some complications there. So is there a way to replace that comment with some automation? 
Almost certainly, yes. I didn't opt for that just because I had already tried a bunch of different things and this had already taken up more time than I wanted. And I was frankly just kind of frustrated with it. So I was like, let me get this done and never talk about it again. And yet here I am talking about it on a podcast. I think it would be possible to do that. I think the main difficulties are, first, I have to curl down that page. Well, I need that page to run in a context that has JavaScript because the JavaScript is the way the CSS runs, which as an aside, I don't like that sentence that I just said out loud, but here we are. So I need it to run in a context that has JavaScript enabled. So the browser was the easy version of that. PhantomJS or something else could be used, but then I need to do that. And then I need some other utility that serves the purpose of the CSS used thing, because I need somebody to be simplifying down the, the amount of CSS that I'm putting in there. So I would need a couple of different layers, and that felt like enough machinery that I was scared of it and the ability to like maintain that workflow moving forward versus let's just do a little bit of manual work each time we need to do this. It's also something that I don't expect we'll be updating too often, like once every six months, maybe, but not on a recurring weekly basis or with every deploy or anything like that. Okay, cool. Yeah, I was curious. I do like that part uh, where, as you'd mentioned, like it's something that ideally won't be changing. And then if you find out that's not true, that it is changing more frequently than sort of stepping back and reassessing for like an easier way to keep this updated for a future request. But otherwise, like you said, hopefully these pages stay pretty static and don't change for a while. Here's hoping. And just to be clear, I definitely did think about automating it because that's what my brain does. But I've almost overcorrected at this point in my life where I'm like, brain, we don't get to automate right now. We have to just do the work. Sometimes it's monotonous and repetitive, but calm down, brain. Well, and sometimes it's faster. I, I struggle with the same thing, too, where I will either over-engineer or over-automate something, and sometimes it's just faster to do the thing and just wait and wait and see if you have to do it again. Like, don't try to automate something that you may only have to do once. Pro tips right there. But anyway, that's, uh, yeah, that's been my adventure this week, uh, which I think just before we started recording, I deployed to staging a version of this that I think works and is good, and I can stop thinking about this now, but we'll see. But how about you? What else is going on in, uh, in your world? So someone listening to the show submitted a question that I've been thinking about because it's something that I haven't worked with that I, I think is really intriguing. So the question is, what's your take on conventional commits? I personally fail to see the value, especially when used exclusively for humans without tooling in place to make use of the structured data. So conventional commits are something that I haven't worked with, but it's intriguing to me, the idea. So they provided a helpful link and looking at that, as sort of to highlight what conventional commits are, they're a specification for adding human and machine readable meaning to commit messages. It's intended to be a lightweight convention that's on top of existing commit message structure that makes it easier to write automated tools and hook into commit details, and also easier for people to then scan the commit history. And it follows the Simver convention by asking that the person writing the commit that they follow the feature fix or breaking changes or the major minor patch, whichever version you like to say. I can't remember who tweeted this or who shared this, but it's been my favorite. I really wish I could recall so I could share the author, but there's major minor patch, which is what I've been raised on <laughs> for like the versioning. <laughs> But then someone shared BFF, which I really like because I just find it so easy to remember and it's breaking feature fix. So I will often like use that terminology instead of the major minor patch. 
But by introducing this convention, then it's the goal is to create a common language that makes it easier to debug issues across project boundaries. And so to kind of give like a description of how this would look, you'd still have your normal title for your commit message. The idea is to prefix it with a type. So it would either be your breaking feature or fix. And then you can include an optional scope. Uh, maybe it's specifically for like a class or something that you want to reference or an extra detail, a colon, and then the rest of your commit title description. Then you have a space and then the body where you can provide additional details about the change, another space, and then the footer that ideally I believe is supposed to reference like any issues that this may address or close out. And there's some pretty cool benefits that go with it from what I'm reading. So the idea is that you can generate change logs based on your commits. It's also just easier to tell the change that is being introduced into master. Uh, it's to communicate with teammates and also the public as to what's changing. So I imagine this is quite useful if you're maintaining like a third party library that others are depending on. You could also write some automation to trigger builds and to perhaps publish those new versions that are added to the library or to create a new version for the library. So it seems pretty intriguing. Have you worked with these before? I've not worked with conventional commits. I've worked briefly with semantic release, I want to say is the name of it, which is a very similar tool uh, or a very similar idea and then associated tool for automating the release and the changelog and all that kind of stuff. I'm sort of torn. Uh, the experience I had with it was fine, but it was sort of, we fought the tool a lot. It did provide definite utility, but we were fighting it a bunch. Commits were rejected as a result of not following the format, but it was too finicky in how it was processing, which I think is a configuration that you can change. But yeah, definitely in the case of like web apps and things like that, I would definitely not use anything like this. I want the simplest commit structure as possible, like a very linear feature branch merging into master. That's it. Even having like a development branch or anything like that, I tend to find to be overhead that I don't want. And I don't find the utility in like having a change log or anything for a web app. I want to be releasing multiple times a day. And so a change log, we should have a manual process to describe features to users. So I think this mostly makes sense in the context of open source projects. And I'll be honest that I haven't maintained something that generating the changelog was burdensome. I find changelogs hugely, hugely useful. So if this helps authors do that, then totally makes sense to me. You said something a minute ago I want to follow up on where maybe I, I misheard you or I'm not sure what you meant by it, but you said that even having like a development branch is too much. Mm -hmm. Did you mean like having like branching off a master and having a development branch or what did you mean in that context? Oh, sorry, like a distinct branch named development or any, so master is the like single core sort of thing and then having anything else like development is what you merge into and then eventually the team lead merges into master once a week and deploys guy one is close to continuous integration continuous deployment that sort of stuff again the lowercase versions of all of those words but like let's just ship our code to production pretty much as soon as it's ready or at least to staging so that we're poking at it live on staging and so yeah that that version i definitely like feature branches love feature branches short-lived but i love them perfect okay i figured that's what you meant but i just felt like i had to clarify to make sure i didn't miss something <laughs> that was there yeah i don't i i think i agree with you in terms that this is super useful and more useful for third-party libraries versus like a product development that you're working on with the team you also mentioned that this is using a specific tool. So having only read the docs and I haven't worked with conventional commits, is there a specific tool that you were using that you said that you were fighting with? Or is this more like this is the format? Everybody on the team is just supposed to know the format and follow this format? Uh, so in the case of semantic release, it is a tool that you use. So it's like an NPM installable package that 
runs as part of like you can say hey semantic release i want to commit this change and then it asks you a series of questions like is this a feature breaking minor those sort of things and it helps you fill it out but will also prevent merges to master and commits and will automate i think i think you can set it up to automate deploying to whatever package repository you're using so it's got all of that stuff built in and that's where we found a little bit of difficulty and again, not having done it, I don't know how complicated those tasks are or how much like this is, a, I think, a perfect follow up to what we were talking about before. Of like, when does automation become worth it? And I have not had the experience of feeling this pain acutely enough that I reach for a tool like this. Yeah, that's a good point. So I think for me, my initial impression of this project is uh, they have a link to some of the projects that are following conventional commits. And I clicked on one of those projects and I look at their commit history and it does look really nice. Mm. Like I also love how they they have some details like this is a chore and this is a fix and this is updating like the doc. So there's a part of me that is very much drawn to that format because then it is so easy for me to scan these commits and see what's happening. But I also agree that I don't want to automate so much that then having like a typo becomes like a big problem because then the automation didn't take place. Like I still want to have manual control over the things that happen. I believe that's true for the most part. So yeah, I would also have to experience like how much automation is in place versus like, are we just trying to follow like a new sort of like standardization of like how we treat our commits and the details that we provide with it. I also do like the structure that it encourages when it comes to like thinking about the code that you're writing. So let's say if you are introducing a new feature and there's some refactoring that you need to do instead of potentially like lumping that all together, I imagine that this would encourage folks to like first do the refactor and then you could tag that as being like a refactor and then tagging the next one as the actual like feature that you're introducing. So I appreciate the thoughtfulness that would go into this and perhaps the fixes versus the features and then the breaking changes. I think I'm, I'm drawn to that part too. Yeah, I think scanning through an example commit log here, it definitely does look nice. And I mostly appreciate the fact that there's a bunch of context and detail in the commit message. And I like the format that they have. But more than anything, I just want people to write, tell me a story in the commit message. Please, please, please. I beg of you. Tell me and your future self what the heck you knew when you wrote this code, because you knew something. I know you did. And so if this is a way to encourage a team to do that, ideally without too much overhead or a, like rigid structure, then I'm all for it. But I don't know that it breaks down that way. So it, I think it ends up being a little bit heavy. And so I think the thing that you and I have probably both worked with in the past is Git templates. So when you're committing, you can have both your local personal template, but I think you can also have them on a project or you can have them on GitHub. I know that such that when you're opening a pull request, it encourages people to write a more thoughtful message at that point, which I definitely like. And then again, ideally that makes it into the commit message final. So you're like squashing down or using GitHub to author that final version or you squash locally and refine that message, but definitely like capture that context, man, that context is gold. Yeah, I think that's uh, my ideal world is like you said, tell a story, have great commit messages. I also just recognize that it, it can be difficult to get a team on the same page to go along and like follow that sort of like, this is what we put in a commit message and this is what makes a great commit message. And that just takes time and mentorship and encouragement from everyone on the team to get there. So part of me likes the, this is a very easy structure that you follow versus this is more of a loose, tell me a story because then that can be interpreted in so many ways. So part of me likes that very, like, this is an easy formula to follow. And oh, yeah, I love the Git templates. I introduced the idea of Git templates, I think, into one of the open source projects I was working on, but ended up not keeping it because it 
prevents you from having the ease of like, if you write a commit message and then you push that up and open it to a PR, then the PR is going to pull in whatever commit message you have. But then if you are using a template for the PR, then it would prevent that your commit message from showing up in the PR description. So there was, I I think that's true. It's been like a year since I worked on this, Uh, but there was something there that was conflicting where folks were like, I'm already writing great commit, I'm already, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that sounds egotistical. I'm already writing great commit messages and I just wanted to show up in the PR description and I don't want to have to like remove the template and then add in my own description on top. So it'd be really great if we didn't have this as like a default, but more as like a guideline. So I think that's how we ended up approaching it. That's interesting. I didn't know about that caveat. And you are well known for your commit messages. So I can imagine anything that's getting in the way of your artisanal, bespoke, handcrafted commit messages. Uh, yeah, Is that I would fight true? That too. Or are you just being kind? <laughs> Oh, no, it's definitely true. You are very considerate in the commit messages that you write. You tell a story, which is the thing that matters. And uh, yeah, I want your words rather than the thing that the GitHub template tells you to do. But uh, I did like the way you phrased that. (laughs) Well, that is very high praise coming from you. So I appreciate it. You are welcome. So while we were chatting, I went ahead and looked it up just to to verify that I'm telling the truth. And it is a little different. So I was submitting a pull request template, not like a, a get message template. And then that was the one that was conflicting. It was preventing the commit message from populating in the pull request description. So small correction there as to what I was trying to achieve. If it helps, I thought you were talking about that either way. So that was my interpretation of the things. I actually don't know if there's a way to configure projects like at a repo level, what the Git template looks like. I feel like that's the sort of thing that Git like hooks. You can only control locally unless you're using a project like Husky, which, as I've mentioned in previous episodes, is not my preferred approach to things. Uh, it's that sort of thing where like I don't necessarily want to force this on someone else, but I want to make it available. And so that trade-off there is, is always interesting. Whereas like the pull request template is definitely something that's shared repo-wide because it's on GitHub. It's in the like central place. But yeah, uh, workflow and processes and things, getting humans to all agree and do the same thing. Always tricky. Tough business. Tough business. But I love it. It's a fun part for me. Well, I think that's possibly a perfect note to wrap up on. So shall we wrap up? Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. This show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you've enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is leave us a quick rating or even a review in iTunes as it really helps other folks find the show. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed or reach me at S on Twitter. And I'm at Chris Toomey or host at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to the bike shed and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.